Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Some of the clearest, most thoughtful, and comprehensive investment thesis I have come across in my crypto native journey were developed by seasoned traditional finance investors. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Michael Schwartz, founder, CEO, and co CIO of Arena Digital Capital a leading multi-strategy investment manager offering broad exposure across the growing digital asset and blockchain sector. Michael is a veteran public and private market investor who spent the bulk of his career in the hedge fund industry. He spent over a decade at Taconic Capital Advisors, a multi-billion dollar event-driven hedge fund, where he is a partner and portfolio manager overseeing the event-driven equities portfolio. Michael is very adept at assessing the odds on a trade. He and his partners believe that over time, blockchains will mature and find product market fits. Utility value will increase. Blockchains are likely to play a role as a store of value in decentralized computer applications, in utility tokens permitting participation in specific networks, and in other property equity and ownership uses. Moreover, the three main use cases for digital assets developed to date, Bitcoin, as a secured and sovereign store of value akin to digital gold, Ethereum as the largest platform on which a smart contract protocol can be built, and stablecoins as money markets to access the digital asset ecosystem, comprise two-thirds of the overall market cap. This leaves investment opportunities in only one-third of liquid venture projects with significant upside should they have commercial success in any of the numerous markets ripe for disruption. Arena Digital is structured as a fund of funds, while this setup is often known for adding an extra layer of fees on top of those of the underlying managers, Michael thinks that the diversification, manager curation, asset allocation, and access to a portfolio of managers provide significant value for investors in a sector that is extremely difficult to access directly otherwise. Michael began his career as an attorney at Sullivan and Cromwell, where he specialized in merger and acquisitions and securities law. He received an AB summa cum laude from Harvard College, and a JD from Yale Law School. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I grew up in Long Island, New York, in a town called Rockville Center, in a very nice upper middle class upbringing, and went to the local public high school, did pretty well, gravitated towards kind of the maths and the sciences, but also loved the social studies. And from there, went to Harvard College, where I studied the history of science. I was always interested in the interconnection of science and technology and its impact on history. And I needed to take all my pre-meds because I was a Jewish boy from Long Island who was good at math and science. And that meant that my mother wanted me to be a doctor. And so I took all of my pre-meds until I decided that I didn't want to be a doctor. And so I did the only other thing that I was really permitted to do was become a lawyer. And so I went to Yale Law School where I gravitated towards corporate law. And unlike a lot of my classmates who go into public service or clerk for judges, I was really passionate about mergers and acquisitions and all the stories that were told through the cases in corporate law and got excited about that and went to work in New York City at Sullivan and Cromwell in the Merchant and Acquisitions Group. So what kind of kid were you? Were you more of a bookworm or was it a good split between athletics and studies? What kind of person were you? Yeah, I was kind of an all-around good student, good athlete. I played varsity soccer and varsity basketball in my high school. By no means was I a star, but at a pretty good athletic high school. And so played on some good sports teams. And then I was 
generally a good all-around student. So it's kind of just that all-around kid. Yeah, that's usually a positive, especially whether it's starting businesses or doing well on the trading floor, which it sounds like you know you did. People always refer to it, I like to hire athletes, and I, I do subscribe to that. There's something about being able to play as a team, understand when to shine as an individual contributor versus playing the team game, helping your teammates, but also the discipline that goes into and understanding the correlation between training and the reward that comes if you've trained well individually or as a team. So that's why I asked this question, because I think it's usually very relevant for how people do later down in life. Obviously, went to some very, very good schools. How was it attending those elite schools when you first joined? What were your first impressions there? My first impressions were, I got to work really hard. This is not going to be easy. It's going to be a lot of fun, but it's also going to be a lot of hard work. And that first semester at Harvard, I took the approach that I'm just going to kind of leave it all out on the field and I'm going to have fun, but I'm also going to work really hard and then see where the cookie crumbles. And I remember talking to my dad, getting ready for finals, like, look, I'm just leaving it all out on the field. I'm going to work really hard. I'm not going to mess around. I'm going to have fun, but I'm going to take my studies seriously. And let's see how I do. If I turn out to be a B student, then I'm a B student. If I turn out to be an A student, then I'm an A student. But it was all along with the mindset of kind of going full bore and seeing how it played out. And so how did it play out? I did pretty well. <laughs> I ended up having a pretty good GPA and graduating summa from Harvard. Did you build life-lasting friendships from college? I absolutely did. I think most of my closest friends in life are from college. I was able to find guys and friends that were like me, had similar kind of work ethic, life, work, fun, balance, where it was okay to work really hard in school, but it was also okay to have a lot of fun as well. Those are the guys I'm most friendly with today. And what did, did people gravitate to in life? So you went on and had a great career in Wall Street amongst your friends. Like, what was the mix there? Did most people go to Wall Street or ended up doing very different things? I have a great mix of friends who did really interesting things. The guys in my fraternity, right in and around where I was there, accomplished some amazing things. The founder of my fraternity, who had graduated just before I graduated, but was still present around the campus, started Taser, which is, he started that company. One of my other really good friends was the number two at Uber. And then my two best friends are really successful investment bankers. And then we had a few guys who started companies and sold them to Microsoft and then rose up the ranks at Microsoft. We had a really good mix of guys, both in the tech world and the finance world, but just generally guys who were passionate about what they were doing, worked really hard and achieved some incredible success. Yeah, it sounds like it. Very, very impressive roster. Was technology even present in your life during those formative years? Did you have any interest in it or is it something that developed later on? It very much developed later on. I was, as I said earlier, good at math and science enough to say, hey, you should be a doctor and take my pre-meds. While I had a great background, it was kind of myopic in the sense that, yeah, either was going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And these friends of mine who went to consulting, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what investment banking was, let alone knowing, hey, there's guys going out to Silicon Valley to see, to build startups in the mid-90s around the internet. Yeah. And then you get to Yale Law School. And I guess my question again is, 
how is that different from the college years when you find yourself starting to attend law school? Are you in that same sort of pattern recognition mindset where you're like, all right, I'm going to have to work hard. What are your objectives at this point? Do you already know, hey, I want to join a top law firm upon graduating? Like, What was your mindset at the time? I knew pretty early on that I wanted to join a top law firm and not go the academic route, not go the public policy route, and frankly, not go the clerkship route. A lot of my classmates were competing for major clerkships with appellate court judges that they can then move on to the Supreme Court level. And that wasn't what I was interested in. I was very much interested in the business world and the corporate world. And so knowing early on that I wanted to do that and knowing the grading system at Yale was pretty pat, was pass-fail or high honors pass-fail, I kind of was able to kind of explore more things, be a little bit less grade focused and more pursue what I was interested in because the air quote real jobs, the ones you had to compete for and get professors' attention and write novel papers were not the ones I was competing for. Yeah. Did you pursue internships on the business side during Yale or was it pretty much all studies and focusing on post-graduation employment? It was all studying and focusing on getting in with a firm that I thought was a great firm to start my career. I was very focused on getting started. Yeah. And so when you hit the ground running at S&C, which is a fantastic firm, I actually have a really good friend who I did my MBA with who went on to clerk for a judge, but then went to S&C, but also brutal hours, right? I mean, it's grueling. It's a lot of work. It requires a lot of stamina and passion for the end objective. Did you find this to be an adjustment or were you at that time sort of able to put up with that kind of pressure? I went in with the mindset that to be successful at Sullivan and Cromwell, I had to think that Sullivan and Cromwell owned 24 hours of my day, seven days a week, and that I would get up every day and whatever they didn't want, they kind of gave back to me. And every morning on Saturday morning, it was a work day and Sunday morning was a work day. And having that mindset, I think, helped me because if I was annoyed at the world that I wasn't getting home at seven o'clock on Thursday night to do something, then I was never going to be successful there. You really had to have that mindset that you worked really hard and they own your time. Do you think this model continues to be relevant? I think there's a big discussion now with the stage we are with AI, especially where you essentially are creating this global intelligence augmentation infrastructure that all of us can tap into and we can start delegating tasks that took us time and we have to build knowledge for. So the skill set becomes a lot more about coordinating and asking the right questions and then tapping into this intelligence. And there's a big debate now as to whether it actually makes sense to work those hours to be performing at that level. Do you think that's relevant? Do you think that world is going to continue, especially to listeners also, who are startup entrepreneurs or investors? How relevant is that sort of more old school work model to the next era of competition? I think it's much less relevant because the points you make that there are machine learning and efficiencies around a lot of the tasks are going to make that life irrelevant or less relevant. I will say that you have to put in your reps to get the judgment. Eventually, it's going to be human judgment that people are paying for. In fact, that's what they pay for when they hire great lawyers or great bankers. 
the tasks of writing the contract or the tasks of running the models are more going to be done through AI or machine learning, or you don't really need Yale Law graduate to proofread a merge agreement at three in the morning to make sure the changes were properly put into the system. But you still need reps and you still need to develop the judgment so that when people call you, whether it's as an investor or as a lawyer or as an entrepreneur, to know how the world works. And if you don't go through those reps, I don't think you're going to be as good and you're not going to have the attention to detail that you need to have, that I think is still important. So you're 100% right that tech is going to play an increasing role in these jobs and maybe make it so you don't have to work 24-7. But you still need to do the reps to develop the real-world expertise and experience for purpose of judgment, and you still need to do the reps to develop that attention to detail that's important in so many jobs. I would agree with this. I think it's just going to be a different type of effort, but you sort of have to earn your stripes and develop critical thinking, and you have to know which questions to ask, and if you haven't done the work. And so I guess there's no free lunch, and there's no easy way. You kind of have to earn your way into a profession or an expertise. And I think that's very important, again, for listeners to understand that there is no instant or immediate gratification. You have to work hard at it, no matter what field it is. In an era where we tend to glorify these sort of fast funding to success to exit kind of mindset, it takes time to build a career. It takes time to build successful businesses. So it sounds like your DNA is coming through here in the conversation pretty clearly. And how do you parlay this experience at SNC into a career on Wall Street? What was the transition there? So I really enjoyed doing M&A deals. The one thing I kind of quickly realized, I liked or thought more of myself as a principal rather than an agent. The lawyer gives advice, the banker gives advice, but I wanted to be more of the decision maker and owning the decision and owning the risk. And so I started looking for ways to get out of the law and into more of the business side and start that transition of my career. Unfortunately, I graduated law school in 99, so there was the recession in around 2001. And so a lot of the opportunities to move over to the banking side, which was kind of the, what I saw as the first step to getting out of the law and into the, the business side of the world, dried up as well. So I had a bit of serendipity happen in my path in the sense that there was one day where I answered a phone call from a legal headhunter who I was about to tell, stop calling me. I don't want to go work in this other firm if I'm going to practice law, which it looks like I'm going to be doing for the time being. I want to do it at Sullivan and Cromwell. It's a great firm, great practice, great deal flow. And the headhunter said, no, 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 I got something else for you. And it was, I've got a hedge fund who is building out their trading desk and they're an event-driven hedge fund and they want a lawyer to be their next analyst on the team. And they just want someone with a legal background. What you're going to do is go research companies, sit behind a Bloomberg, and tell the portfolio manager what all about your research. And I sat back and said to myself, this sounds awful. I love negotiating deals. I love thinking on my feet. I don't necessarily want to be behind the computer. And I said, I'd love to meet them. Because the only thing I knew about hedge funds besides what she told me on the phone was they worked less and made more money than I did if done well. And that seemed a little bit attractive at the time. And so I went and met the hedge fund and I liked them. They liked me. The DNA of the firm was from the old Goldman Sachs arbitrage desk, which was originally 
one of the original founders was Bob Rubin and my mentor at the hedge fund, he was Bob Rubin's protege. And they had a healthy respect for lawyers being able to teach them how to invest and leverage their legal background in terms of probabilistic thinking. And so I like them, they like me. And I thought it was a good opportunity to take a risk. This was the, probably one of the first in what's become a pattern for me of risk reward decisions, saying to myself, okay, I like these guys. And if I go work there, there's tremendous upside. And if I go there and fall on my face, well, then I could probably find a job at most law firms in New York City and maybe lost a year of seniority. That seemed like a good trade at the time. And I went for it. Do you think about life a lot in risk reward terms? At most decisions, you think in terms of what's my downside, what's my upside? Is that how you assess different forks in the road? I do. I very much. I mean, it was the way I was trained to invest at Taconic. I was a merger arbitrageur. And so a lot of the time you're thinking about, okay, what are the market implied odds based on the upside downside of the situation? And what are my implied odds? And if it was a positive expected value bet, and it was significantly positive expected value bet, I'd put it on and put it on in size. And that started training me to think about life in terms of risk and reward, which I think is a, is a really good way to think about life. Because if I was only afraid of failing in that situation, I would have never taken that job and not thought about the upside and the probability of me being successful. And so I've kind of parlayed that across how I think about most decisions. Yeah. They say there's nothing, especially on Wall Street, there are so many very prominent founders of hedge funds or traders who have legal backgrounds. There's nothing more dangerous than a lawyer with good math skills and good social skills because you could raise capital and you could put the trades on and understand the risk. And whether it's obviously a lot go to distressed or merger art, but I have a few really, really good friends who have legal backgrounds. I've gone on to, to be incredibly successful. So before we get into Arena and your foray into blockchain, were there along the way any setbacks that allowed you to grow as an individual, as a professional? Or was it, again, like being athletic mindset of you're going to grind it out top perform and you just had the stamina and the skill set and the intelligence to really you know, just follow a pretty linear path. Was it linear or was it, you know, were there some setbacks along the way? No, there were definitely setbacks, but they were teaching me about risk and reward and they were teaching me about investing. So nothing, you know, you don't bat a thousand when you're investing. And so first off, I didn't know what Taconic did. I didn't know what the hedge fund did. And so I spent six months trying to figure out how to add value and what it was not a straight path of, oh, this clicked. This took some time to click and some hard work and a lot of doubt whether I even belonged there. And then you get lucky with a trade, not lucky in the sense of the decision went the right way, but certain trades come along that maybe fit your skill set. And so there was a trade that came along, which was dependent upon calling the outcome of three big cases in tobacco litigation. And at the time, Altria was going to spin off Philip Morris International. They couldn't do so. Existential legal cases hanging over their head. But if they won those three cases, then they would have been able to spin this subsidiary off and potentially create a lot of value. So that happened to come along and allowed me to use my legal background and study those cases and make a call in those cases. So that kind of helped. But then there's also setbacks where you, I had a deal where we lost 
a large amount of money because it, it went into the weekend. There was the bid ask spread between the two companies was 31 to 35. Usually when you go into the weekend, 31 to 35, and both sides urged and a deal gets done somewhere in the middle and we would make our money. On Saturday night, that deal, I remember the deal got called off and the target just plunged in value and we lost a bunch of money. And I was going to spend the rest of the year basically earning back that money little by little because merger arb, you're kind of picking up nickels in front of a steamroller and you don't get that many opportunities to make big bets or big dollars. So, it's, But what that taught me was I went and faced my partners on the trading desk and there was the view that, hey, this is the business we've chosen and this is what happens. Sometimes you could predict something's going to happen 90% of the time and the market's implying it's only going to happen 50% here and you think it's a positive expected value bet, but that one out of 10 times, it goes the wrong way and that's okay. It's not okay that you lost money. It's not okay that you got to have to grind it back, but that's the business we're in and it kind of taught me about investing that we're into making probabilistic bets. If we make only positive expected value bets, we'll do well over time, but it could go the wrong way. And you've got to just keep plodding along and keep going. So definitely not a uh, straight path up. Yeah. And the reason I'm asking those questions is really because you are in the business now of selecting managers and selecting portfolio managers. And there's no better person to assess that than did you really, because you've been in that seat. You think in terms of risk, you think in terms of odds, and you understand what they're going through, right? And so number one, you're going to see through what they're presenting or how they're managing their business because you've done it in the past. It's interesting that you talk about your strategy, which is, as most market practitioners will know, akin to essentially selling puts and finding though, because the upside is really limited in nature. The spread you can capture on a merger is known. It's defined ahead. The question is, have you assessed the odds correctly so that you're going to win most of the time? But there are cases, as you mentioned, where you lose. And the question is at that point, what is the potential loss conditional on your bet going wrong, right? And it brings an important principle, which is, it's a game where you need to stay alive, right? As long as you're still alive and you have capital, you can climb back out of the hole. Where a lot of traders go wrong is the loss conditional on the bet going wrong is lethal to the business. And then they can't climb back out of it. And I think that's an important lesson to learn. And I would imagine with the management, the partnership you know, at the firm that you were at, you're able to sustain those phases where, you know, you had drawdowns for that reason. So how do we get to you getting interested in blockchain technology and digital assets all the way to starting a business in that space that would allocate capital? What was the path that you traveled that got you to that inception point? Sure. Well, you're dead on that merger are reselling puts. And I started, um, wanting to stop sell puts and look for some call options because they could size them smaller, but your upside was much greater. And so I left my hedge fund to kind of really go spend more time with my sons and my wife. It had been a long haul and I was looking forward to spending some time and being involved in their lives. And then also managing some of my own capital a little bit more along the lines of looking for call options to buy at that time in my life. And so I had 
in managing that capital, I was looking for ways also to leverage the limited bandwidth that I had. When you're on the trading desk at a big hedge fund, you've got tremendous amount of resources and you're in the flow. I kind of realized when I'm doing this on my own, I'm out of a lot of that flow and I have less resources and, and only myself and only my whatever limited risk capital I wanted to put to work. And so I came across Bitcoin and crypto and I started thinking, learning more and figuring this was a good place to deploy my human capital and my risk capital given the potential asymmetric upside, the call option on the space. And so I just started learning more and more about Bitcoin and it went from there. So in trying to position yourself for that upside, how did you parlay that into creating a vehicle that puts you in a situation where you're essentially intermediating the analysis, the selection, and the vetting of folks who are going out there, literally touching the assets, putting the capital to work, putting on the trades? Like, why didn't you actually decide to do it yourself? In other words, be in the trenches yourself and choose that middle layer where you're actually selecting the managers. Sure. Well, let me take one step back, which is I started by buying Bitcoin and then quickly figured out that there's an ecosystem growing up here. And from there, moved on to buying the, the companies, the picks and shovels and invested with a private equity fund that was doing the picks and shovel strategy. And that made a lot of sense to me. And then from there, I said, hey, you've got an 80 vol asset here in Bitcoin. Someone needs to be able to trade an 80 vol asset with limited directional risk and make money based on the volatility. So I went out and found some market neutral funds to put money into. And then from there, kind of said, hey, this is not just a trading vehicle. There's actually a technology here. I want exposure to the technology and went out and found the hedge funds basically doing the liquid venture capital. And then I took a step back and frankly, my partners in digital did the same thing on their own and we did some deals together. But I took a step back and said, hey, I've kind of legged into a multi-strategy approach to investing in this space. And I'm not exactly sure how we're all going to make money, but there's a bunch of different ways and I want kind of exposure to all those things. Maybe I provide that access vehicle. And now you're right that at one point I said to my partner, my co-CIO in Arena Digital, maybe we should do this on our own. And we started talking about trading this stuff on our own and developing a hedge fund where we were the portfolio managers. And it became abundantly clear after a bunch of diligence that you need to live, eat, and breathe this stuff 24-7, even more so than traditional markets because it is a 24-7 market. And we realized we weren't living, eating, and breathing this. The managers that we came across who we thought were talented in this space were embedded in their space like we were embedded in our traditional finance roles. Like I was embedded in the merger and corporate event space, like my partner was in emerged in the small and mid-cap equity space where we lived, eat, and breathed our names in our situations. We didn't feel like we were positioned to do that with the digital asset market and the crypto market. And so we thought that, hey, this looks a lot like there's a lack of an access product and we could put that together. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the capital that has flown and will continue to flow progressively over time because despite the challenges in the asset class, I think, you know, it will, you know, start attracting capital again when we go through this next iteration of polishing up the use cases and creating a technology infrastructure that more people can use. 
but the allocators will need seasoned professionals who understand how to create a portfolio of opportunities as opposed to these very specific bets. So I think it's a wise choice there given you and your partner's backgrounds to set yourselves up to provide that interface into that world. So obviously a very complex and very diverse space to navigate. When you started at in your hedge fund career, you used the word mentor. And mentors and advisors are really important along the way. As you got started in the digital asset space, a new space, most of the participants are of a younger generation. And how did you go about finding people who could help educate you and your partners and stay on top of the game and learn? I'm assuming a big appeal and draw to someone like yourself was the learning curve. But who did you seek advice from? This space in particular, but the advent of the podcast and YouTube was really helpful, where you could really go seek out the experts and learn from the experts, whether the experts were 22 or 25 or 45 or 60 and experienced with different backgrounds. But you could really learn a lot just through people's podcasts and decks on the space. And so we spent a lot of time learning from macro investors who moved into the space and why they thought it was a good trade to the technical participants who had started private equity or venture capital funds and what they see in the space. But there was a tremendous amount of material out there, almost too much. You couldn't digest, you could climb down the rabbit hole and do this 24 seven and never get through a lot of the podcasts and learning materials. But we relied on that. And it was just an acknowledgement that we needed to get up the learning curve. And that was how you did it. Again, back to what we were talking earlier on about AI and this just collective intelligence augmentation. We have a data set and a bank of information and resources online that did not exist, simply did not exist two or three decades ago. And so you needed mentors, you needed the apprenticeship side of the business, but you also needed, just quite frankly, the information, the knowledge, and you could only get it if you had made it through the top schools and got into the top firms to access the knowledge that it took to create alpha. The way one navigates the digital world, and I think on a going forward basis, is actually where the information is not necessarily scarce, it's abundant, but it's sifting through it and narrowing down where you want to focus and then making sure that the information you have access to is relevant and accurate. So it's a different type of challenge. Did you start with your capital and your partner's capital? It sounds like you did, but at which point did you start thinking about raising third-party assets and get other investors involved? Well, each of my partners and I all kind of legged into a multi-strat approach to the investing digital assets on our own with our own capital. What happened was I was running into people who were saying, I don't know how to get into this. I missed the trade. Bitcoin's too high. I missed that trade. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know how to get in. And that's when it dawned on me that there was no or very few access products to the space. And it reminded me a lot of the early 1990s and the traditional hedge fund, fund of funds business, where no one knew what Stanley Druckenmiller did. They only knew we did it really well. No one knew what Paul Tudor Jones did or 
No one really could figure out how Steve Mandel did his work at Lone Pine. And they didn't know how to get access to those people. And they didn't have the minimums for investments in each of those hedge funds. And so it struck me as, hey, we could dust off the fund of funds playbook and provide that access vehicle. And there's an actual business here from what we were doing on our own that we could provide that service. And frankly, I thought it could go one of two ways. I had also pitched some high-end wealth managers that I would come inside with a small team and set up these SMAs, separately managed accounts, invested in the digital asset sector and different hedge funds or vehicles for their clients. And it was quickly rebuffed and found that high-end wealth managers look for products and outsource them. And that's when we pivoted to the fund, fund the fund structure. But it was really along the lines of saying, hey, there's a need in the market for some type of diversified, curated product, access product, give people exposure to this potentially transformative technology. Are there any operational considerations when you're at that middle intermediation layer that you're in as a fund of funds versus the funds that you assess and vet, which clearly are need to have trading interfaces you know, with exchanges, they need to manage treasury, both on the fiat side and digital side, you know, there are jurisdictions that they can operate in and some others that they can't. At your level, do these things matter as much or are they really just truly part of the vetting of the underlying managers? Like what part does it play in your business? For us, it's really the vetting of the managers where it plays the role. We really need to do much more operational due diligence on our managers, our prospective managers, than you would have to do in traditional financial world markets. But that's where it comes into play. From my business perspective, it's relatively simple. I own, there are 10 funds in our portfolio. So I basically own 10 pieces of paper that say we're a limited partner in those funds. And the main challenge for us is, it's like raising capital, managing our liquidity and matching our liquidity of our investors to the liquidity of the underlying managers and making sure we can balance that. But aside from that, operationally, a fund of funds is rather simple, straightforward business. The complication comes in doing the due diligence and vetting the managers, which requires an extreme dive into the investment acumen and repeatability of the investment process. But in this space, a deep dive into the operational factors, whether and how those hedge funds can operate and operate well. How are your roles split from within the group? Sounds like you kind of came all came together from looking at opportunities together to formalizing this as part of a common vehicle, at least for some part of, of your assets. How do you split roles and do you have a team? Do you have people that work for you and help you with the analysis of the managers and managing the ongoing allocation and monitoring of the portfolio and risk management of the portfolio? So there's three founders and ostensibly we're bootstrapping things. The three of us can kind of handle all the daily tasks. And you're right, we do split responsibility. One of my partners, Michael Prober, is my co-chief investment officer. The two of us, of the three partners, were the two hedge fund managers who actually ran money. And so we're responsible for creating and managing the portfolio and doing the due diligence on that front, uh, given our background of having been investors and know what it means to run money. 
And then my third partner is the president of the firm, and he's tasked with more on the marketing side. And then as CEO of the business, I kind of oversee all of it and take care of the administrative factors and other relationships. But we all take a role in marketing. Michael and I manage the portfolio, and we go from there. That sounds like a good split according to skills. I think one of the things that's important in partnerships or ventures like this, because it is a venture, is, is to know exactly where your skill set lies and have both a kernel of overlapping involvement and passion in the business because you need to put on many hats, but also have core non-overlapping skills that everyone can really add value on. Now, if we think about getting this up and running, when did you start, like formally start the Fun of Fun business? So I pitched my partners at the end of 21, December of 21, right before the new year. And we pulled the trigger on moving forward on January 1st, 2022. And we launched the fund May 1st, 2022. Got it. And candidly, how easy was it to get going? You could also see the clouds forming, right? In the first quarter and a half of 2022, things were still frothy and there was a lot of excitement out there, but the clouds were forming. Was it easy to get going? Was it mostly at the time like your capital, just setting up the vehicles, papering it and getting some of it deployed or did it start getting progressively harder versus the second half of 22? Well, I think from just getting the business up and running and getting the fund form, that's just brute force and that's not hard. That's just work and time. We did see the storm clouds coming and we were happy to have launched six or seven months into it. Would have been better to have launched 12 months into it and not captured May. But I think it was mostly like half partner capital, half outside capital. And the idea was to get going for two reasons. One, we had a multi-strat approach. And so not all of our managers were just fundamental driven and long only or long biased. We had arbitrage managers and market neutral managers. So we thought there could be some protection of capital and take advantage of volatility in the markets, despite the fact that the clouds were forming. And then the other thought was, hey, we want to get going. We want to get invested in this space. This is not a six-month trade. This is a several-year investment in an emerging technology and one that has potentially asymmetric upside. And so as the market sold off and we were buying in, it was kind of okay. You don't like to lose money, but the asymmetry was only getting better. And so we thought that getting going was more important than anything. Yeah, that makes sense. So now we're entering an exciting part of the conversation, which is you as a former portfolio manager, how do you think about monetization opportunities? Like, where do you think about deploying capital and what is your investment philosophy? You said you had 10 positions right now in funds and presumably you're looking to grow that over time, whether it's allocating more to those existing 10 positions or bringing on new managers. There is also a question of, and one that you and I are intimately familiar with, which is it's a asset class that's underpopulated from a hedge fund perspective compared to, let's say, equities or, or fixed income or commodities. So it's hard to find managers because, quite frankly, there aren't that many. But how do you think about portfolio construction? And again, what is your investment philosophy? Our investment philosophy is to take a multi-strategy approach, that there's a bunch of different ways to make money in this space, and we want to give our investors 
exposure across that spectrum. Now, at a high level, that breaks down into two kind of meta buckets that we think about, one being what we call fundamental-driven managers. And this is really liquid venture capital. Ostensibly, these hedge funds in the digital asset sector are venture capitalists because protocols, projects, they go, quote unquote, public at a much earlier stage. So you don't need to lock up your money with venture capitals for 10 years to participate in series A to a series E technology companies. That's what happens once after the seed stage when the protocol goes public with their token. And then these liquid managers can trade series A through series E stage companies, depending on the status and uptake of the technology and the valuation and move that around. So one of our buckets, which we skewed a little heavier to on the back of the drawdown, is what we call fundamental driven managers who are ostensibly participating in liquid venture capital in the space. And then the other meta bucket in our portfolio, the way we think about it is there are new and emerging digital asset markets. They have tremendous structural inefficiencies in them, and there are managers who could take advantage of the trading opportunities in those structural inefficiencies. There's arbitrages, there's factors that relate to each other that algorithms can trade, and we think that we can find some managers to take advantage of those opportunities. And what that meets out is kind of a multi-strategy approach between those two types of managers. And then we drilled down a little bit more, a few of on our fundamental side, I'd say three or four of the managers are long bias tokens, so liquid venture capital. We have a liquid private equity manager who is buying certain assets ostensibly cheap in the market, like Mapbox bankruptcy claims and creating Bitcoin cheaper. And then we have an earlier stage, more liquid venture capital manager who's playing a little earlier stage than our other long bias managers. How do you think about the impact of the macro environment on your set of strategies, right? Because obviously the impact is going to be very different. One on the fundamental side, presumably creates a shakeout and an opportunity for value creation and value identification. And I'm curious to hear how you think about that. And then separately, we've obviously seen a lot of liquidity being withdrawn from markets. And so for those strategies that are inherently less directional in nature, probably more directional in the vector of volatility is arbitrage or any sort of non-directional harvesting a risk premium that is created by lack of access or lack of capital and only those with capital can come in and step in and harvest that. So you've got these two buckets. How is the macro environment impacting those? Well, I think you have to be wary and cognizant of the macro environment. On the fundamental side, I think clearly the sell-off in risk assets has created a better opportunity because you have a better entry point and or has made it harder to trade given that things have drawn down. But my thinking there is while this trades a little bit risk on, risk off in the short term, whether we're right and we over the longer term is going to be technology use case dependent. And so the macro can be a little bit of noise on that front because while the risk on, risk offness of this will create marks up or down, which can impact fundraising or just having to deal with how you handle that with your investors, it really doesn't speak to the technology. 
I liked, I read um, Masari Ryan Selkis' report at the start of the year, and he had something in there about the technology being inevitable. You're not going to uninvent this technology. Yes, we need use cases, but we've got tremendous growth already, and we've got tremendous growth projected into the future. And so on the fundamental side, macro impacts my thinking, just risk on, risk off, but we're not going to be successful if it's a risk on, risk off asset. This has to be based on technology working and viable use cases that when we pick up our phone, we're using blockchain technology for all these various interactions with companies and the financial intermediaries and markets. I think you're right on the, the macro definitely impacts the market inefficiency side of the book because you get less opportunities for arbitrage with less volume with retail being out of the trade, a lot of those trades become less attractive. And so for us, it just means looking for more managers on the fundamental side and being wary of our managers or prospective managers on the market inefficiency side, continually having to go up the complexity curve in their arbitrages and whether those are sustainable. And so we'll just think about that as we're continuing to look for new managers or how we allocate new capital in our portfolio for the right balance. So it sounds like in those two buckets, the main risks that your managers are getting compensated for is on the one hand, adjusted for macro beta, which you know, to your point is, is not secondary from a risk management or a portfolio volatility, but it should be secondary with respect to the actual security selection process. But where the real compensation and the risk compensation come from is a superior skill set in assessing the underlying economics and the viability and the potential of, of the technology of the ecosystem of a given app that has a token. On the other side, the risks are really if the managers are able to apply a capital where others aren't and are getting compensated for being there and sizing it and identifying where opportunities for arbitrage exist whilst maintaining risk neutrality with respect to a variety of risk factors, including the macro factor. So that's pretty clear. So do you think that overall, though, for both of these buckets, there is an overall existential threat to the asset class as a whole from an investment perspective and the traditional sort of asset management perspective? Sounds like you don't, but I want to hear your thinking there. You've talked about you can't undo the technology and something has to come out of it. And use cases are being developed and being solved for today in a way that hopefully will just abstract it and make it pervasive you know, across a variety of apps and services that we use. Do you ever wake up in the morning and think about fundamental existential threat? And I will also leg into, I know you have some strong views in respect to regulation and the overall framework in which those assets operate? Sure. The thing that I get concerned about is not whether the technology is going to work or not, is how early are we? Are we too early? That's the real fear. That's the thing that would keep me up at night, that we're just super early in the deployment of this technology. I think I remain steadfast in my thinking that, hey, when you have a technology that is going to be more inclusive, more efficient, reduce middlemen rents, potentially is faster and cheaper for more people, it usually wins. It just may take time. And so I think that the risk that these managers are taking is just being good at picking out what 
the winners are going to be or potential winners or intermediate winners as this technology develops. And I should say that that being said, I'm not saying that we should replace our portfolio should replace S&P 500 exposure with digital assets. I just think zero is the wrong allocation to a an asset class that has such tremendous asymmetric upside. Because it's really actually when you do the math, and it's a trillion and change of market cap. But when you strip out Bitcoin, which is one use case, terrific use case, you strip out stable coins, which is another use case of neutral market for the space, and you strip out Ethereum, which is a terrific use case for smart contract computing, you're left with like $300 billion of market cap. And so there's a tremendous asymmetry to the upside that if some of this technology works in that $300 billion and is looking at markets that are in the trillions, whether it's global payments or global banking or real world assets that are currently private that could be traded on blockchains, opportunity is so huge that one ought to have some exposure to this 1%, 2% of their net worth or their portfolio and exposure to a technology that could potentially have such tremendous asymmetric upside. So I think about that and just question at what stage are we at and can we monetize this in the nearer term than the longer term? That is something I keep an eye on and think about. But I don't think that this is going to be pushed aside in someone's portfolio because it's really, if you have, if a portfolio, whether it's a high net worth or a family office or an institution, has an allocation to venture and private equity, this ought to, some of that ought to go to this. And then as far as on the regulatory side, I do have a strong view. I was at a conference and the portfolio manager made the good point that you can't put the toothpaste back in the bottle. This feels very much like that. And it feels very much like we've seen this play before. US did this with electronic payments where the business incumbents, the political incumbents are, don't understand the technology, are threatened by the technology and try and quash the technology. And what ends up happening, what's happening with electronic payments on the internet is eventually you can't stop it. And the US ultimately welcomes it back and takes a lead on it. And I think here, the US regulatory approach is unclear. There's this whole regulatory action by enforcement action is kind of all, somewhat all over the place and is just going to create uncertainty. And I think, I actually think that the US can still the industry can survive in the US amidst the uncertainty for a period of time until you get legislation. But even if it's less welcoming in the US, if not outright hostile and more difficult to operate, this is a global phenomenon. This is a global technology. And we'll just push the development overseas. We're already seeing that and progress won't stop. I don't think you can really stop development of this potentially very usable technology. Yes. And I do think that even though it doesn't appear that way, I do think that there are members of Congress who understand what's at stake, especially in a world where you could really take human capital, ingenuity, innovation, and rip it out and move abroad or just really dilute our competitive advantage. And I think there are people in Congress who understand that and are receptive to that. I'm also encouraged that within the industry, some leaders and you know whether they're liked or not you know we look at, at someone like Brian Armstrong at, at Coinbase have been working the regulatory playbook for a while they understand it they've got really highly competent people who understand that playbook and they have quite frankly the resources 
to stay there for the long game. So I'm encouraged. There are worrisome developments at time, especially we have a, a climate of regulation through enforcement right now, which is, you know, talk about being short puts. It's very, very hard to assess as an investor where the downside lies. And that's what makes it incredibly treacherous to navigate. But I'm encouraged that over time, this is more of a, a patchwork. It's more of a reaction to 2022. And probably there is an element of political pandering in some corners of the political spectrum to use crypto as a scapegoat. And I think this too shall pass. At least that's my opinion. You know, back to considerations of capacity, which is always one of my questions is how big is the opportunity set? I think you answered this to a certain extent. I wonder to what extent capacity actually matters at this stage if you're deploying capital, because you're really playing this asymmetry, right? It's more a question of, can you position yourself for a high multiplier, right? And it harkens back also to the early days of venture. You know, nowadays, there's a wall of money accessing the venture space, but it used to be that venture funds were a lot smaller and they commanded much higher returns on invested capital. And I think we're at that stage. And to your point, yes, indeed. Like, are we too early? Where are we exactly in the cycle? It's hard to say, right? And that's why I think your portfolio construction is interesting, right? Because even though it probably doesn't have a lot of scale in sort of overall aggregate GMV and and just notional outstanding exposed to the market neutral strategies, there is a you know almost like a, a coupon type payoff to those things, right? It's like if you could do arbitrage, if you can harvest some risk premia out there, you're creating sort of a more recurring stream of income that allows you to support the call option side of the book, which is the fundamental book, right? And hopefully at some point, the call option starts to realize. And so that's attractive. Candidly, how hard has it been so far? Was it harder than you thought it would be? And where are you in sort of your journey, you know, day in, day out right now? I think what's been harder than I thought is just raising capital and getting people excited about have, making this asymmetric bet. Part of the challenge is targeting and where, where it's been harder is targeting U.S investors. Because a lot of US investors hear the popular mainstream media and the politicians coming down on the crypto sector. And they use the word cryptocurrency. And so they they come at this with a lot of views that need to be not corrected, but just clarified what we're talking about. People, People think we're talking about getting new money in the United States. And if you're sitting across the table or having coffee with a high net worth US investor or a family office, they don't need new money. The dollar is just fine for them. And they don't need a new banking system because you know what? The banking system is just fine for them. The biggest issue they may have is that it takes a day to wire money. And that's kind of annoying, but they get through it on the five or seven capital calls they, they deal with at a time or over the course of the year. So it's what's been hard is transitioning people's understanding from the new money argument, which we put aside, to the technology argument. And the case for blockchain technology and kind of getting away from the idea of currency and the idea to digital assets and blockchain. And so that's been challenging because especially in the US, having that first conversation trying to clarify what we're talking about before we even get to what we're talking about, to then getting to why invest in the space and then 
why Rita Digital or some other form of investment in the space has been challenging. That's been hard. Well, I think that the effort will pay off. What's great about the space is it's still relatively small in terms of human capital and intellect and energy deployed to figure out the path forward. And so I think the positioning is there for your business to really, really capitalize on the next wave of innovation and the next waves of capital infusion, which inevitably will call, right? It's, and if you have somewhat patient capital, you know, you can play the long game. And especially if you do have those strategies that are less dependent on the upside realizing in the very near term, although digital assets have realized quite nicely in the first part of the year, but no one knows how it's going to continue throughout the next 12 months. Michael, it's been fantastic chatting today. I feel like we could do probably another couple of podcasts just to cover the whole space. You know, I'm encouraged to see seasoned, very successful finance professionals coming into the space and helping investors navigate what is a very complex and complicated landscape, whether it's on the technology side, the risk management side, the regulatory side. And so I think that you and your partners have a very well-suited background to help investors really decipher where the value is. And I think the success will come inevitably. I think we just have to navigate through this phase and there's no better place or or people to work with than people who actually know what they're doing, who can play that role of allocating the capital in a wise and a very risk balanced manner. So thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.